Hi, I'm Pelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today on Seizing Life, I'm happy to welcome Jessa Kenworthy. Jessa is the training director at Four Paws for Ability, an organization that trains and places service dogs with children and families. Jessa is here today to provide us with an overview of what goes into the training and placement of seizure alert dogs and how these dogs can support and assist people with epilepsy and their caregivers. Jessa, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited for this conversation. You know, I find that seizure dogs are such a hot topic of conversation within the epilepsy community. People have so many questions. To start off with, can you tell us a little bit about the organization that you work with for Paws for Ability? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and to be, you know, trying to shed some light on some of these things. It's definitely a newer field within service dogs. And so very excited. So for Paws for Ability, uh, we're an organization based in Xenia, Ohio, and we place service dogs mostly with children with disabilities and also with veterans. Very good. And how long has the organization been in business? Yeah, so Forpaws has been around since 1998. Okay, and what type of service dogs do you offer? And does it vary depending on the disability that the owner will have? So we place um, service dogs, like I said, primarily with children. As far as what the service dogs do, we have a number of tasks that we'll place them doing Our most common types of placements are our autism assistance dogs and our seizure alert dogs, but we also train mobility dogs, hearing ear dogs, um, and a number of other things. We also, one of our specialties is that um, each dog is uniquely trained to help the person that they are partnered with the best way they can. So we are multi-purpose service dogs can do any number of tasks just based on what the needs are. Wow, that's amazing that it's so specialized and catered to the specific individual. And how many people work for the organization? How many dogs are you able to train? Yeah, absolutely. So we have 75 employees and just under uh, 2,500 volunteers. Um, And we place about 120 dogs as service dogs a year. Oh, wow. It's a pretty big operation. It is. (laughs) And where do the dogs come from? We breed our own dogs. Um, Being able to be a service dog is, it takes a lot of, of course, training, but it also takes the right type of personality. So to get more likely a dog's personality that is going to fit being a service dog, we breed all of our dogs um, to get that, but also for specific tasks as well. We'll look at that and say, okay, we want to breed these dogs together because, you know, we want to have a litter of dogs that's going to be more likely to be able to be autism assistance or a litter that is more likely going to be able to do seizure alert. Right. So what kind of breeds are those typically? Yeah, absolutely. So our main breeds are golden retrievers and Labrador retrievers. We'll also do a a mixed breed between both a golden and a lab together. That's fairly common in the service dog agency. Uh, We also, as an agency, 
we'll place a golden retriever poodle mix. So families that have allergies can still receive the benefit of a service dog. And um, some of our placements, we will also place a papillon, which is a toy breed dog um, that are not only, of course, great companions is their breed standard, but they also are very alert and make great service dogs for doing things like hearing ear and even medical alert, like um, diabetic alert and seizure alert. So, you know, golden retrievers, Labradors, golden doodles, these are all dogs I think a lot of us are used to seeing as service dogs. Is there a reason that these specific dogs are more typically used and that, you know, uh, for paws for ability specifically breeds for this. What is the reasoning behind using these dogs than, you know, say a border collie or a pit bull or a boxer? So part of that is that the breeds themselves are breeds that their personalities, while they weren't necessarily bred to do these things historically when the breeds were created. Um, they are breeds that are, you know, naturally very social and friendly. They're family dogs. They do well in general with the public as a whole. Um, and they've just been bred to be very happy, you know, biddable dogs who like to do jobs and want to please you, which of course makes them great service dogs. Um, the other piece is unfortunately a lot of public perception uh, especially with certain bully type breeds like pit bulls. Um, the public often, unfortunately, doesn't have the best sort of view of them. And um, even though pit bulls are, you know, most of them are so, so lovely, sweet, kind dogs, um, it would be more difficult for many families going in public. Um, they would probably get questioned a lot more. And, you know, you might have more of the public in general, you know, maybe wanting to avoid you because they're worried about, you know, this breed and they're concerned about things. Whereas one of the big things we like to do with our dogs is a social bridge for our kids who oftentimes don't have many friends. So it's easier for a lot of people to be interested and want to approach a cute fuzzy golden retriever versus unfortunately seeing a dog that they often has a misconception of is going to be aggressive. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, I wonder, uh, you know, I think probably one of the biggest questions people have around this and hearing that you breed the dogs yourself, you know, so this is highly specialized. They are trained to their future owners, specific needs. What does something like getting a service dog cost? Yeah, absolutely. So the kind of total cost for the breeding of the dogs, the training of the dogs, you know, everything that goes into it, the staff, the supplies for the volunteers, there's a ton of pieces that go into it. And that total cost is for our agency, probably around 40 to 50,000. Um, that's that's not what a family um, that would be receiving a service dog would be contributing um, by any means, but that is kind of the total amount that goes into it typically. And, and then I guess what does the family pay? Yeah, so our families, we ask them to um, join us and help contributing to our cause um, through fundraising. Our current fundraising requirement is 20,000. So the families can do this through fundraising, outreaching to their community. So in the end, they may not have to spend a penny at all. Um, it of course takes effort to do the fundraising. Um, some families will 
will choose to just write a check. Um, it is, you know, kind of up to them. We have supports in place to help with fundraising. Uh, and then we have other ways um, looking at individual donors and grants and corporations to kind of fill that gap between the 20,000 to the 40 to 50,000 it actually takes to get the dog fully trained and placed. So a family decides, you know what, we're going in, we want the seizure dog. What does that process look like from beginning to end and how long does it take? Yeah, so the process starts with um, applying. There's an application on our website. You fill out the application. There's a small fee that goes through it just to make sure you know you're you're a little, you're serious about this. Um, once we get in that application, um, there also it needs to be a, pretty much a note from a doctor, kind of prescribing a service dog, saying that a service dog would be a benefit to the partner. Um, and then we do an interview, a phone interview with the family, you know, to answer questions, explain the process and figure out what the needs are um, for the partner. What are the tasks that we can train the dog to perform to, you know, help with, you know, their needs. And at that point, once they've finished that, there's a couple other paperwork pieces they need to submit. And then they're ready to fundraise. The fundraise is kind of the part that is sort of the most up in the air. Um, some families might have one fundraiser and they meet their goal. Others, it takes longer. Um, as a generalization, our fundraising for families takes four to six months. Um, once the fundraising is complete, they are placed into our next open available class, which at this point is about two years out. So then we have that two years to breed and train the dog that they will be receiving. So... We're, we're thinking pretty far out in the future here. And I guess that's important to think about though, you know, if your child is newly diagnosed or within the first couple years of this, it's good to get in now and get on the list, get the fundraising going, because this is a long lead time. And that makes sense if you're training the dog specifically to go with the child, then you have to have the child ready to go, and then you have to train the dog. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. Did you know that one in 26 Americans will develop epilepsy in their lifetime? For more than 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has funded cutting-edge, patient-focused research. Learn more about our mission to end epilepsy at cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. What does dog training for you know, seizure awareness there's uh, alert even look like? I, I mean, I, don't, I can't even imagine how you do that training. So, you know, of course, once, like I said, the start process of, you know, we're breeding dogs specifically, not only to be service dogs, but oftentimes to be certain types of specific dogs. Once the dogs are born, their training pretty much starts immediately after they're born with different exercises to get them comfortable with being touched by humans and different sensory things to kind of help their mind grow and build different bridges towards different inputs. Um, once they can hear and see, we're starting to um, socialize them to different visual stimuli and different auditory stimuli. Um, as the dog puppies continue to grow, um, their first year is typically very focused on socialization. To be a good service dog, you need to be confident enough in any environment and with any person to be able to do your job. If you can't, then 
you can't focus on your job. It doesn't matter how well-trained you are. If you're nervous, you're not going to be able to do your job. So that's our primary focus for that first year. After that first year, um, we do an evaluation on all the dogs, kind of see what are their natural abilities, their natural talents, what's their personality like. Uh, we figure out, all right, are there still some things they need to work on? Um, they get evaluations at 12 weeks, six months, and then the year to kind of just help them along and provide support as needed. If we determine they're ready to go on to that next step, we kind of select them at that point for the partner that they're going to be working with, and we start tailoring their training to that specific partner, um, and we bring the dogs back for advanced training, and they're in advanced training for you know months where they learn at that point all the specific skills they need to be able to be a service dog. Our volunteer trainers, as well as socializing them, have taught the dog you know manners, basic obedience, social skills, stuff like that. So they're not coming in loving everything, but with no like basic knowledge, but their, their specific service dog skills to their placement are being trained in advanced training. And then after the dogs have been trained, the families are coming to a class um, where they learn how to handle their fully trained dog. That is a nine-day class at this point. And there are um, programs that they have to go through before attending class um, where they do a lot of their education before even coming to class. And then that class, at the end of that, they have a public access test to make sure that they can handle the service dog in public. And then we go home with all sorts of supports in place, weekly Zoom meetings, monthly check-ins, different paperwork, just so that, you know, we are constantly supporting that team through that first year, as it is often the most sort of challenging as you are transitioning to not only having another family member, but a family member with a job. And, you know, so it's, it's a lot. So we definitely want to have not just support till the here's your dog, but plenty of support after they've received the dog as well. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting point that this is a working dog. This is not the family pet. This is, you know, it is a family member. It's, it's part of, you said, the team. How does that work if you already have a dog in your home? So uh, for Paws for Ability, we do not require that you rehome any current pets that you have um, when you would be receiving a service dog, as long as those pets are not going to be, you know, aggressive to the service dog. Um, so some agencies require that you rehome, which makes sense for their program and what they are trying to do. But for us, we find that it doesn't impact um, the service dog's ability. We will say, okay, this family has cats. So we make sure that the dog is comfortable working around cats and can still do their job around cats. So Jessa, it sounds like you know, with all the training that goes into place that the dog is roughly around what, like two, two and a half years old when they're placed with a family? Yeah, so that's that's a fairly typical age. We might go as young as a little over a year and a half. Um, but yeah, that, that general kind of time frame around two years is, is pretty accurate. Um, some agencies will place their dogs at an older age, uh, which makes sense for their you know, what they do and what they're trying to accomplish for our dogs, you know, having a bit younger can be a benefit because most of our placements are with children. It allows sort of, you know, the youngness of the dog as well to be able to be a little bit more adaptable to some of the behaviors that the child might be presenting. A bit older dog might be a little bit 
less likely to be interested in sort of adapting to some of those maybe a bit more intense behaviors that the child has. Now, you mentioned, you know, you do a majority of placements with children. Is there an ideal age for placement that you've seen? No, not necessarily. We will place our service dogs at any age, uh, whether, you know, probably our youngest has been one or two years old. Um, And we've also had um, adults that we have placed with where, you know, they might be in their 20s or 30s, but, you know, maybe they are, you know, at a school level of, you know, you know, eighth grade or something like that. And so we will, you know, still place, they're still living at home and with family. Um, So it's not a situation where you turn 18 and you're, you know, you don't have that option if you need a service dog from us. Do schools allow these kind of like seizure alert dogs in schools? What has been your experience there? Yeah, so schools is one of our trickier areas. Uh, Some of our families can struggle a little bit with that. For our placements that are on a two-unit team where it is the partner who is handling the dog, it's fairly easy because they simply just bring their dog to school um, and work their dog at school. When you talk about a two-unit team, you mean the person with epilepsy and their dog. Yes, that is correct. Those are the two people. Um, So just like if you need a wheelchair, you don't have to get permission. You just come to school in your wheelchair. Same thing with the dog. Where it becomes a little trickier is with our three unit teams. So for our three unit teams, it is the dog, the partner, and then a trained adult um, who is handling the dog for the benefit of the partner because the partner is unable to handle the dog themselves. And that can be tricky because um, that needs to be a one-on-one scenario. And if you have a classroom that has just one teacher and say one aide for the entire classroom, then the service dog wouldn't be able to come in that environment because you need someone to be able to be focused on handling the dog for the benefit of the child. So if the family has a one-on-one aide for their child at school, then that can be trained. Um, And so the problem is typically within access of the three unit team, if the school hasn't already been providing a one-on-one for the child, it can sometimes be difficult to get one. Got it. That makes sense. The The purpose of the dogs is to alert the partner or the family when a seizure is going to occur. So I have, I have a handful of questions here. <laughs> How in the world does a dog know when a seizure is about to happen when people don't necessarily know when they're about to have a seizure? And what does that Like how much time in advance is it like they let you know five minutes before you get like a day's notice? Like how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for our dogs, the way we train them is scent based. So there is, we believe, a scent component to the buildup and then occurrence of a seizure that the dogs, when trained, can pick up on. Um, We do, plenty of agencies will place um, seizure response dogs that sometimes will will pre-alert as well. That's typically a natural behavior that some dogs will do, Um, but we we train it. Um, And we train that based on scent. So the families will send in scent articles of when their child has had a seizure. And we use those to train the dogs on that scent so that they learn that whenever I smell this smell, it means a huge party and a big reward. And so I want to make sure to tell you every time I smell the smell. So like if I were to tell you 
every time you smell a vanilla candle, I'm going to hand you a thousand dollars. You're going to be sure to tell me every single time you smell, you smell a vanilla candle. So it's kind of like that for dogs. Our dogs uh, alert ahead of time, um, various different amounts. We have some dogs that will do like 10, 20 minutes. And we've had uh, other dogs that do 12 hours, 16 hours, uh, 24 hours. We have one dog that has done 36 hours in advance uh, an alert. Typically there's a pattern with it. So once the family has established that pattern, then they kind of know, all right, here's the countdown, dog alerted at this time, look forward, you know, five hours, and that's when we can be looking for that seizure. Sometimes the intensity of the seizure can also determine the dog's alert window. Um, if it's a more mild seizure, their alert window might not be as far out, maybe 20 minutes. If it's sort of a moderate seizure, maybe it's two hours. If it's a really big seizure, it might be six hours in advance. And then it's sort of up to the family to kind of set the clock and then reset it as those time periods pass. And then they can kind of know, okay, we missed both our 10 minute and our two hour out. This means this is going to be probably a really big seizure and we're looking at six hours out. Oh, that is fast. So there's this, so there's definitely this period of a, a learning curve with yes. the dog to figure out when their alerts are going to be, because I'm sure it varies on the dog and it probably varies on the individual and the types of seizures that they have. You know, someone with epilepsy, their seizures may change over time. They could change medications and that'll alter what their seizures are like. Or especially with children, as they're just growing and their brains are growing and developing, their seizures also grow and develop and, you know, not always in the right ways. But so how does that affect the dog when they're trained on this one specific seizure type or smell and then that changes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the adjustment for our service dogs from training to being able to work with the families and alerting to a real seizure is definitely a transition. We do our best to support our families through that process. And we, of course, train, but it is unfortunately not something that we can guarantee. There's outside factors that could contribute to the dog not being able to transition to actually alerting prior to seizures. Um, and if the dog is has transitioned and alerting, any of those changes can definitely affect the dog and sometimes temporarily throw them off as they have to sort of readjust to a new norm, whether that's the frequency of the seizures or how the seizures smell. We found that some of our dogs struggle at first with the transition in medication because we think it likely makes the seizures and the scent of the child smell differently than what the dog is used to. And so they might have a period of time where they miss some as they're sort of adjusting to what the new normal is. And is that something that Four Paws helps the families with those transitions or are they kind of on their own? No, we are always, always there to help support our families as long as they reach out to us. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a two days after they've gone home with their dog or 10 years from when they've gone home to their dog. We will always be there to support them. We have, you know, that initial first year of support, which is a lot more intensive. But then after that, we have yearly recertifications. And then at any, any time, families can reach out and we'll provide them with support. Sometimes it's a situation where maybe we place a dog that wasn't doing seizure alert because it wasn't in need at the time. 
and then maybe the child develops seizures later, we can have the dog come back and learn that additional skill and then go back to them. So we lifetime support of our dogs and our families. Oh, wow. That's amazing. What a relief for the families. Now, I have to imagine that not every dog makes the cut. So how many dogs do make the cut? And then what happens to the dogs that don't? So uh, at Four Paws, our goal is a 40% success rate, which doesn't sound like much, but that's pretty no, accurate for the agency. Yes. Um, and that's because we all have such high standards for our dogs. Uh, we only want the best of the best to be able to go on to be service dogs for our families. So all of our other dogs uh, become available for adoption. Primarily, they will go up for adoption um, and be offered to their volunteer trainers who have raised them. And if they are interested and also meet the requirements, then they can adopt them. Some of our dogs might not be the best fit for a service dog, but they would still work well with one of our families who either is awaiting a service dog or already has a service dog. And so we can place them as a, a pet companion. Um, and then if neither of those things happen with the dog, then we offer the dog up for general adoption to the public. And we have a fairly extensive waiting list for all of those. <laughs> I can only imagine that that wait list is, is incredible, but, um, that's pretty amazing. And how long can they work before, I guess, they retire? So uh, that depends, of course, a little bit on the dog and also the task they're performing. If you have a dog who is just doing, say, seizure alert, um, that's their one of their only tasks, then that task, like a dog's scenting ability, you know, is typically something that stays fairly strong with them throughout their life. So they can typically do that up into an older age than, say, a dog that was doing intensive mobility work that maybe was required for stand and brace support or, you know, opening and closing doors all the time and doing other things that are just gonna, you know, they're just gonna cause a little bit more wear and tear on the dog's body naturally. Um, that dog might not be able to work as long as, you know, a different type of dog doing other tasks. We hope that all our dogs can have a working life of 10 plus years. That is certainly, you know, our goal and our family's goal, but as long as the dog has worked five plus years, then we consider that kind of meeting that sort of baseline level. Um, and then it, we tell our families, you know, once you start noticing the dog is slowing down, maybe not enjoying going out and about anymore, you know, a bit slower in, their, in doing their tasks, then you might consider, you know, if you're interested in another service dog, then starting that process for the new service dog. Um, it can be very beneficial for many of our families to be able to have a transition between um, their original service dog and their new service dog. A lot of times you kind of find like a little bit of a mentorship thing happens with the original service dog, sort of showing the new one the ropes um, and helping them adjust. And it, of course, can be very hard on our families, you know, if their first service dog ends up passing before they get their second. So we always encourage them, you know, the sooner you apply, you know, the better. We can always push it back, but we it's hard to push it forward. Uh, Jessa, you mentioned various other tasks that the dog can be trained to do. For a person with epilepsy, are there additional tasks that the dog can be trained for aside from just alerting when a seizure is about to happen? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the ones that we do in conjunction with a pre-alert is an alert during the seizure as it is happening. 
Um, we also can train the dog to go and retrieve a bag with medicines that are necessary to give the child at the time of the seizure. Uh, we can also have the dog, typically after the seizure, um, provide comfort and support through laying with them or laying on top of them to provide deep pressure to help kind of ease the transition out of the seizure as it can often be very, you know, discombobulating and scary and everything's like that. Having their dog right there with them as they're sort of coming out of it um, can be very comforting. Um, and like I said, we place our dogs in, you know, doing all, so many tasks for all sorts of different disabilities. So it is not at all uncommon for our, you know, families to come with us with multiple diagnoses. So you might have a, you know, a dog who is, you know, we might categorize as an autism assistance dog, but there's also epilepsy involved and maybe also some mobility needs. Um, so we, you know, our families can, we can pretty much, you know, tailor, as I said, the dog to their needs. So you might have a dog that is doing, you know, multiple different things that you would sort of normally categorize in different categories, but it's all things that they need to, you know, help them and, you know, help support them. And now I know that you are based in Ohio, but you do provide dogs nationwide, correct? Yes, that is correct. And then I also understand that you have a furry friend yes. there perhaps <laughs> at your feet that we can meet. Yes, absolutely. Let me wake him up. Sniffles. <laughs> Hi, buddy. Okay, come on. This is Sniffles. Hi, He's Sniffles. a golden retriever. That's um, so it's an appropriate name for a dog. Yeah, so he's in training right now in advanced training. I'm training him in um, behavior disruption, which is sort of the comforting support, as well as seizure alert. So he is um, kind of towards the end of his training um, and will be going out soonish. I can't obviously divulge more information than that. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he's working on those things and he's such a love bug. He's such a sweetheart. Oh, he looks like it. Oh yes, we're talking about you. You're very handsome. <laughs> yeah. You guys, thank you. <laughs> oh my goodness, what a love. I love it, Jessa. Thank you so, so much for walking us through this process and answering all of the questions. The work that you do for families is incredible and we are so grateful to have organizations like yours helping our epilepsy community. So thank you so very much. Absolutely, thank you so much, Kelly, for having me. I'm very excited about this. Thank you, Jessa, for that thorough overview of the training and responsibilities of a seizure alert dog and the benefits these dogs can provide to improve safety and quality of life for those with epilepsy and their families. Cure Epilepsy understands this. That is why for over 20 years, we have funded patient-focused research aimed at discovering new therapies and cures for epilepsy. We hope you will support our efforts by visiting cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Through research, there is hope. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals 
who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual specific health situation.